Uh, the start of the week and plenty from your day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. The arts world has lost somebody very, very special, a very talented um, broadcaster, journalist, writer, uh, an actress. Um, but her friends have lost something really special. When Deirdre was your friend, you were befriended and minded and cherished. When my kids now say to me, um, Dad, did you said something about working on the teenager and yeah. I was like yeah yeah oh really did you really do that I go oh. like they weren't even born yeah that's how long ago it was but it's CV gold the mullet that men's hairstyles at business at the front and sides but party at the back has climbed out of the dustbin of fashion faux pas to stage an achy breaky comeback and we'll start in the morning. Philip Badger Hayes was taking a look at the situation in Turkey and Syria in the aftermath of last week's devastating earthquakes. The rescue efforts continue in Turkey and Syria a week on following the devastating earthquake which has killed over 33,000 people with the United Nations warning that the death toll could actually double. According to reports, rescuers pulled a woman alive from the rubble of a collapsed building but the chances of finding more survivors is now growing more and more remote. To get an update on these efforts, I'm joined on the line from Istanbul by Didem Dimarchan, who is Deputy Executive Director of Oxfam Kedov, the Oxfam affiliate in Turkey. Very good morning to you. Thanks very much for talking to us, Didem. What can you tell us now about the rescue efforts or, more properly, perhaps the recovery operation? Well, the rescue is almost finishing, so now it is more the recovery and it's time really for the people who are staying in the area to provide them with the necessary shelter that they need. And also many people are moving out of the cities to to their friends or families and they are uh, they will be needing support in the places that they are moving to. In addition to that, there will also be like, a, you know, a rebuilding of the infrastructure in the 10 provinces that were affected. Um, so that that will also be a priority. Judging by the pictures that we see from Turkey of what the weather is like, this is no time of year to find yourself outside or sleeping in a car. These internally displaced people, are they mostly managing to find accommodation inside? No, they don't want to move into a house because they are still scared because of the aftershocks. So they prefer to stay outside in their cars or by the fire. Now uh, there are teams uh, distributing uh, tents, uh, but very soon we would need to move the people to the prefabricated or container uh, buildings so that they can find a better shelter in this very hard winter conditions. The quake was spread over a very wide area. How are roadworks, how are communications in those areas? Are you able to move things like prefabricated buildings around? Well, the roads are still not very well. So there are still places that, uh, you know, it is difficult to reach. Uh, it's also because of the traffic. Uh, because the roads were destroyed, uh, uh, there, there are some traffic jams in some parts of the roads. And uh, Hatay Airport uh, was destroyed, but now it is open to uh, humanitarian aid, uh, cargo planes. Um, and uh, as you are saying, the communication channels uh, are not also very well at the moment, especially in cities like Hatay, which were affected very badly by the earthquake. 
How clear a picture do you have of the situation over the border in Syria? Uh, we have Oxfam teams working who who have been working in Syria before the earthquake, and they are still there reporting to us. Uh, and we know that you know the earthquake. Nine out of ten people were living under the poverty line, so earthquake hit a community that were already having going through difficulties. So we know that there are still uh, rebels that rescue teams could not access. And there will be a lot of need for shelter, food, uh, blankets, water, uh, medical supplies to the affected communities. President Erdogan has, uh, in the eyes of some people, concentrated uh, disproportionately, perhaps, on saying how he is going to deal with looters as opposed to how he is going to deal with the relief effort. In your experience, how big a problem has looting proven to be? It has been a problem and it has uh, maybe not at a big scale as it it was reflected. But of course, this is creating some security concerns for the people who are staying in the cities uh, and who, who prefer not to move to another city or another place. Are we at the point now where really the most effective support that can be offered by the international community is cash for organisations like you to purchase things locally or are there specific supplies that you need in Oxfam? So uh, we, we think cash is important because it is important that we immediately can react to the needs on the ground. So cash gives us this flexibility to make sure that as soon as we hear, you know, a certain need, then, you know, we can directly purchase that. Uh, so cash is important. Did M. Demerkan from today with Philip Boucher Hayes. Then later, donations to the disaster fund in Turkey and Syria was also on the minds of callers to Liveline. One of the first texts in, Joe, do you know anyone driving trucks to Turkey, would Aer Lingus put on a special flight? There's tons of fundraised stuff, winter clothes, infant formula, nappies sitting in Ireland because they can't get transport for it. Our local GAA club has masses of stuff boxed and ready to go, but the Turkish embassy in Dublin are overwhelmed. Aer Lingus put a special aid flight on for Haiti. Would they do it for Turkey? Now, one of the people uh, receiving uh, a lot of uh, donations and is not all, not entirely happy to say the least with with what's been handed in is Evren Ertigal in uh, Cork and you're from Turkey yourself Evren so uh, first of all condolences and deepest sympathy on the the tragic death of so many of your countrymen and countrywomen Evren you're receiving donations but you say some of the some of the items you're getting are Disgusting. Good afternoon, Joe. Um, <clears throat> thank you for having me on air. Um, first of all, uh, I'd like to say I'd like to thank you, thanks all the Irish people' generosity and kindness. Uh, we are overwhelmed by their support. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it means a lot. I can't say that uh, we're getting a lot of bad stuff. I can say that ninety percent is everything is perfect but you know 10% um some of the stuff that are coming inside the bag is a bit uh yeah I, uh, I don't want to say it but it's disgusting the other day um i find out a, a potty inside the bag uh, that you train your kids for a toilet use potty in one of inside one of the bags um okay. so and and also we've been told by the embassy that everything we received 
it has to be in unused, clean condition. So when we say that sometimes people, they get offended uh, yeah. by that. We, we, uh, by the way, also, I just want to clarify this. We are not a charity organization or we are not a, we are not a company. We are just individuals who are just trying to make a difference, trying to, trying to help people in need over there. And once again, I would like to thank from bottom of my heart for all the generosity and kindness for Irish people. Um, but sometimes people, they get offended easily. So I just want to clarify a few things that um, this is not our decision. We've been told to, that uh, everything we receive has to be in a clean and with, mm. with unused conditions. Unused, okay. Um, um, I know some some of my some of the people that they brought in a bags of stuff that they're dry cleaned and everything. We happily put them in a bag. But some of the stuff that are coming out inside the bag, like unused, sorry, used underwears, oh um, that like 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 socks. There's hole in it. Um, uh, jackets, there's like a, maybe a kilo of fondant all over, you know, so you cannot send this kind of stuff to people. Mm. People, they're already suffering over there. And you, I mean, you can't send these things. The reason that they told us that disease transmission, uh, so everything has to be clean, uh, unused. Mm-hmm. So well, we put a lot of uh, used product in there, which, which are clean and dry cleaned and everything. But some of the products, we cannot put them in there. So what we did was uh, we donated to local charities uh, across Cork. Um, even some of the charities, they wouldn't accept it unless there's a tag on it. Um, so You mean um, that tag means it's just been purchased? Tag means that's unused. Okay. And this is a new, new to me as well. So I, I personally went into one of the well-known charities. And I asked them if they would take it. They said yes. So I went over there. I unloaded the van. And the boss uh, told me that they can't have it. It has to have a tag on it, unused. So I have to load back the van again. So trying to find another charity uh, for who is helping for homeless people uh, up on Shandon Street. They will have mm. to take it. So we'll donate them over there. So everything goes in a good use. But we started this as a volunteer basis. And the, the help and everything they overwhelmed us, so we, we didn't know where to put all the stuff. There was so much stuff coming in, and, and also we've been uh, instructed by the embassy by fr- uh, last Friday, so they will only accept sleeping bags, blankets, and tents. So that's what we are collecting okay. now, and today, today 5 o'clock is the, is the deadline, so we won't be accepting any more donations. And there is a huge, like you said, there's a cargo waiting to be uh, uplifted from Dublin um, to transport it to Turkey. Um, so that's where we are at at the moment. Well, that's ever in there. Then Olivia called Joe. Yeah, well, I went on Google to see where there were drop-off places around Dublin, well, South County Dublin. Yeah. And um, there was absolutely nothing on Ireland where you could drop anything off. And I phoned a few, I phoned one or two charities mm-hmm. and they said that they didn't, they had heard nothing about where you could drop things off. Then I was told that everything had to be new. Um, And I had some good coats that, um, I mean, they they were a couple of years old, but I didn't really wear them. And eventually I found somebody who took the coats. But, you know, it it, it seemed disgraceful to me that on Google, all over England and the the UK, there were drop-offs everywhere. And here there was nothing that you could drop them off. Around the Dublin Wicklow and what area. Did you, what did you think of Everyn's point? He set up a drop-off point in Cork City because he's involved in penny dinners. Uh, what do you think of Everyn's point is that they don't want any second hands, oh, including well, your coats? Well, I mean, is it not a bit daft when people in Turkey and Syria, they're freezing, you see them, they have nothing. Mm-hmm. And then they're telling you that everything has to be brand new before they'll send it. 
What about that, Evren? Like, you need heavy coats, surely. Um, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with her, but I just have to clarify one thing, that this is not based on my decision. I'm just an individual who's trying to help those people over there. I mean, I grew up wearing my brother's uh, coats and shoes or mm. whatever, or, or, my, or my cousins. I've no problem with that, as long as they're clean, you know, that's no problem. But this is... What they've been told us that it has to be uh, new or, or you know, unused condition mm-hmm. because of disease transmission. So, disease, and also, disease like, transmission, yeah, yeah okay. Disease, yeah, virus, whatever. Um, but also, the other thing is that people they need to uh, they need they need to they need to know know this that we are not an organization, we're not a charity organization. We are just volunteering this. We mm. just started as as, as you know individuals. And then people, like, they get together, and I don't know what's going on in Dublin. To be honest, we have, we, uh, so I can only speak on my behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's going on in England and everything. Um, so we just started this then voluntarily, and we had so much support. And it's overwhelming. It's like a snow, we made a snowball effect, and we were just hoping okay. just to fill a one, one, one load of stuff. But now we have a, a truckload of stuff, uh, and which is great. And I mean, I like, I'd like to thank them uh, unconditionally. And also, uh, I'd like to use your platform and so thank Musgrave Group. Uh, they mm-hmm. made a massive donation, okay, and they well allow done. us to well u- use their. Uh, branches, all the super values and centers across the country for next two weeks, people they can donate over there. Uh, oh, so, okay, yeah. well, like, just explain that to people because super value and center are a massive network. What can people yeah. donate in super value and, and at, center? At the moment, what, what you can do next two weeks is you can, you can donate money over there and the money will be given to Red Cross and UNICEF, okay. so they will go to the people of Turkey and Syria. So, Joe, at the moment, there's people we have lots of clothing and everything. What people need over there is shelters. So okay, shelters so you're means, saying, are you saying, uh, insofar as you know, Evan, you, there's enough clothes? Plenty, and, and in, in Turkey as yeah. well. There's, uh, there's aid, there's, there's help coming on everywhere, and they're having a massive problem to distribute all these. Uh, mm-hmm. So what, they, what, what they're telling us now is the main priority is shelter, tents, okay. container homes. So for these, you need money. If you donate... Money mm. that will go to Irish Red Cross and UNICEF, and they will help the people in need over there. Uh, and especially, it's very difficult to get those aids to Syria because of you need a safe passage, and only yeah, UNICEF yeah. has access to that as well. So um, that will be the most effective way. And then Gail called Joe and Everin. I, I was just wondering, Joe, do they want clothes or only new clothes? Or, you know, could you clear that up for donation, really? Okay, uh, Everin, do you want clothes or only new clothes or none? Um, Joe, at the moment, as in, as in Friday, we've been instructed that we have so much clothes and what they were looking for uh, urgently is sleeping bags, blankets and tents. That's what we, they're looking for. And today, as in 5 o'clock today, is the, is the, is the deadline for donations because um, there's so much stuff needs to be sent out over there um, so they can't cope with so that. You don't, so you, so don't, want, you don't want clothes? No, thank you. you no, it's... No, we don't want, yeah, at least it's just when too people much, know yeah. that, they they um they won't be delivering to them. To, and do they do all the the blankets and sheets or sleeping Do they have to be new or can good quality secondhand ones do? We've been we've been told there has to be unused condition. Unused. Oh, that, it seems a little bit harsh. You know, people may have very good quality ones and and want to give them away. It's such a big crisis. Maybe. They shouldn't be so fussy about what they want. If people legitimately give good quality goods, even if they're lightly used, maybe they should be taken. 
Okay, I'll I'll just put it here, my input in here. Okay. There, all these people are helping out their volunteers. Yeah. So okay. if I were to make a decision based on what I have in front of me, I'll have a look. Is this one is usable condition? It's clean. I'll put them in a box. But I'm just talking about myself. But some people have they can't take that initiative and okay, it has to be unused. If it's used, it goes on the site. So it's uh, it's all volunteering based. It's it's not an organization or company is doing this charity organization or charity. Oh, company, I understand. You know? So I understand. It's, that is the problem. And we've been told that because of a virus transmission, um, they they they're not accepting it. It's there it is perfect. It, well, what you are saying is it makes sense. Perfectly, it makes yeah. sense. But yeah. uh, I, can't, I can't. I'm not calling these decisions. And I just want the people to understand that we are just helping voluntarily, dedicating our time, our our money, and everything over there. There's nothing we're making out out of this. It's just uh, we're just trying to follow the rules, what they've been told us, because everything has to be itemized, put in a boxes, label them, um, you know, then wrap them up. That's how how they are accepting all these donations. We are doing all this by voluntarily. All the students oh, are you're, you're under pressure. I understand. Yeah. And if you had more volunteers, would it be possible to, for people to sort through the goods to show that they're good enough to, to be sent out, if, even if they're not brand new? Um, okay. There is a problem to that as well. The logistic is a problem. And okay. the, the, the help is coming all around the world. Mm -hmm. The Istanbul airport at the moment is in standstill. They can't cope with it. And also, you can, you can, you okay. have to put it, keep that in mind that they can, they need certain mm -hmm. amount of clothing. Now they need is a shelter, so that's the emergency at the moment. So that that they are focusing on, and that's what we've been told. Yeah. Well, maybe there's other organisations, you know, homeless charities or whatever, yeah. who would have more, um, you know, man and woman power to go through these things because. It seems an awful pity that good quality goods are being, you know, rejected um, and that they really need to be used, be used somewhere. Because, you know, there is issue with dirty things being sent through, but most people send mm. very good quality, lightly used items to charity shops or to organizations. Yeah. Well, well, if you listen, well, if you listen, in the beginning of my conversation, I said that 90% of yeah, people Yeah, no, that's are, why they're, I, was, they're, I was actually quoting you. I, I, I can I can not thank enough Irish people for their generosity yeah. and you yeah, know okay. on behalf of my people. Okay. Okay. I, 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 where yeah. should we make donations to Red Cross or where would be the best place to make donations if we wanted to make a donation? At, at the moment, all the Musgrave Group has super values and centres across the country. They are accepting donations in the next two weeks, and all this money will be contributed to Irish Red mm. Cross with UNICEF, and so the money will be spent on people for Turkey and Syria. So. That's what I can suggest you to do, and that will be the most effective way. People, they need shelter, they need houses, so they need money to build those things. Um, but as in clothing and everything, we have so much at the moment, and we have one truck full here is waiting uh, for phone call from Dublin to, so they can they tell us that we can send over there. Or the last thing that we are going to find a courier company, and we're going to send it to Turkey but with our own cost. Um, so we have so much at the moment that we cannot go through. And we are just oh, I under, volunteers. I understand. Gail, Gail, yeah. can I ask? Thank you, thank you very much Gail, for telling people. That's Gail and Everin on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on the Ryan Tuberty show, the controversial world of re-gifting. Let me just read a quick email that came in from Anne in Dublin about the world of re-gifting. Think about it before I read this email. Have you ever re-gifted? Did you admit to the re-gift? And did the other per person 
raise an eyebrow and say, this is a bit re-gifty. Doesn't matter. She's, it's, it's lengthy enough, but I'll go for it. I wonder, she says, if you could float a subject with your listenership, please, if you have the time. One that infuriates and intrigues me in equal measure. The practice of re-gifting. We have four birthdays in our house in the five weeks after Christmas, so perhaps... That explains why this is a subject close to my heart and one to which I have given too much thought in recent weeks, having opened or bore witness to the opening of more than a few gifts, which, well, had the bang of someone else off them. And because I believe an ill-directed re-gift is far worse than no gift at all, at least with the latter, you can claim ignorance or forgetfulness for the omission. A bad re-gift, however, says the complete opposite to the recipient. To me, it says, I acknowledge the expectation of a present be that well-founded or otherwise, but I only value you enough to give you something I didn't want myself. Personally, I'd have far more respect for the person who just owned their decision to give you nothing at all. Now, Suzanne, I'm not saying never re-gift, far from it, but just acknowledge that it is a delicate art with subtleties and nuances attached that are seldom lost on the recipient. Women are definitely the chief offenders here. A man would either not be bothered to buy you a present or wouldn't end off, and respect to that. What man do you know with a secret stash of unwanted articles that didn't pass muster, ready to pass on to unsurprising, unsuspecting celebrants? But many women are viral hunter-gatherers of all kinds of such treasure. Virtual, I should say. Perfume of a questionable genre, statement jewellery, unreturnable earrings, eczema-inducing bath products, all on a virtual merry-go-round of re-gifting. Poker-faced gift tours, somehow managing to hold it together whilst you remove a basil-scented candle actual example, from a recycled evoca bag, whilst the recipient has to sit there putting in an Oscar-winning performance and pretend they're being gaslit into thinking the gift in question was actually purchased with them in mind. We're nearly there. The whole exchange just turns into a complete cringe fest. So take yourself off to a real live shop, says Anne, and make the effort, I say, or indeed don't for that matter, because the thought that goes into the selection of a dodgy re-gift is not thoughtfulness or certainly not in a manner that will endear you to the recipient. And I'm sure your listeners will have some prime examples they'd like to share. P.S. Regifting via children is even worse. Using your kids as unsuspecting gift mules to Auntie Anne or Uncle Barry? Just plain offside. Anne in Dublin. If you know Anne in Dublin, just be careful. Oh, but Anne in Dublin wasn't the only one. Okay, uh, regarding regifting, I used to make uh, homemade wine, finished off well with cork and uh, uh, covered lid, uh, gave a bottle to a friend only to have it regifted to me the next Christmas, said nothing uh, to her, but gave me a huge laugh. And uh, I thought I was doing a good job if it looked professional enough to gift it back to someone. <laughs> oh, Lordy. But this has to be my favourite regifting story. I once got a dressing gown, says Joan. Um, this is on regifting. A dressing gown with somebody else's tablets in the pocket. From the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Morning Ireland, finding Patrick Sarsfield. After more than 300 years, Patrick Sarsfield, the first Lord Lucan, may finally be coming home. Famed in song and story for his swashbuckling role in the Willamite Wars, he was one of the wild geese who fled the country after the siege and then Treaty of Limerick. What happened to Sarsfield after that? Well, the man to ask is in our Limerick studio. He's Louis Guillon and he is the Honorary Consul of France to the Midwest region. Louis, good morning. Thank you for joining us. What fascinates you about Patrick Sarsfield and what led you off on a hunt for his final resting place? 
Good morning, Mary. Uh, well, it was when I was appointed as Honorary Consul of France uh, in Limerick back in 2019, I was looking at the um, historical connections between the city, uh, the region and France, and I discovered this whole um, historical episode of the flight of the wild geese. And it's a fascinating story. It saw thousands of uh, Irish Jacobite soldiers leave Ireland and uh, settle in France, fight for France. And one of them, of course, was their leader in a way, um, Patrick Sarsfield, mm. and his entire life story is uh, is like a novel, really. So I decided to try to to find his remains and um, repatriate them to Ireland. That was back in November 2020. It is a little. I think there might be a movie in how you set out to find him. Will you tell us a little bit about it and how you tracked him down? Yes, well, for uh, over two years now, a little bit over two years, I've um, conducted intensive research. I've um, uh, gone through archival material. Um, I've uh, verified historical sources and I've um, fact-checked in a way uh, the various versions uh, of his death. And uh, there is one version that says that he died on the battlefield of London. Another one which says that he was transported to what is nowadays uh, nowadays the Belgium city of Huy. And so um, that was... a, a a painstaking work in a way uh, over the past two years to try to ascertain what was true and what wasn't and what was said about his death. Um, do you and- think you have him? Yes, I do. I think now I believe after those two years of research, I've pinpointed exactly the site where uh, he was buried and that's in that city of Huy. On the, on the site that used to be the site of a church there, but there is only one wall of that church remaining nowadays. And um, <laughs> the epiphany moment, in a way, was when I was able to determine that uh, the site behind that wall is actually nowadays the back garden of a townhouse, uh, which means that the site is accessible. Uh, but there was even more to that. There was a haha moment. The authorities of Rui and asked who was the owner of that house, and I was wondering how the owners would give us give us permission to dig their garden. Uh, but in fact, it turned out that uh, the local authority of Rui have purchased the site and are happy to give us uh, access to the site. So lucky for you, lucky for Ireland. So <laughs> yes. now what? We have to have a dig, do we, and DNA? Absolutely, yeah. So I'm delighted to announce that um, uh, with my, the, the, the sponsor's project, uh, Carillon Global Solutions Ireland, uh, we've been able to form a partnership with a Limerick-based company, uh, Aegis Archaeology uh, Limited, who will be conducting uh, the excavation for us. And part of the research that I've conducted over the past two years was aimed as well as at identifying descendants of um, the Sarsfield family. There are no direct descendants of uh, Patrick Sarsfield. He had a son who uh, passed away at a young mm-hmm. age, at 26, without children. However, um, I was able to uh, find a descendant of the Sarsfields of Cork who has a common ancestor with Patrick Sarsfield that dates back to the 14th century, actually. I am in awe of your skills and your (laughs) detective work. So, look, we're just out of time, but uh, hopefully he will be on his way home very soon. Uh, Do you have a preference, Limerick or Lucan in Dublin? I can't can't say. It will be for the Irish government to decide. I've got my my preference personally, but I won't say it now. It's not for me to decide. You've certainly made your significant contribution. Dr. Lua Guillon with Mary Wilson from Morning Ireland. And on today with Philip Edger Hayes, Philip was asking a very important question. Should the mullet hairstyle come back in fashion? 
Don't break my heart. If I said Billy Ray Cyrus, rugby legend Shane Byrne and Patrick Swayze, you probably wouldn't be too long before coming up with the mullet as the common denominator. The Kentucky waterfall, the beaver paddle, the neck warmer, the Tennessee top hat. That men's hairstyles that business at the front and sides but party at the back has climbed out of the dustbin of fashion faux pas to stage an achy breaky comeback. So is it hip or hick? Is it edgy today or East Germany yesterday? I'm joined now by Irish Times journalist Conor Kaplis, who says he loves his mullet and doesn't mind being compared by colleagues to a Stasi agent in East Berlin, and by Lisa Eccles, hairdresser and owner of Zinc Hair and Beauty, who presumably has to do whatever her clients ask her for. Good morning to both of you. Morning, how are you? Conor, it is glorious. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Um, Who persuaded you? That um, it was a worthwhile decision, or the one to make right now. Well, I guess I guess ever since school, you know, I just kind of tried out different haircuts, and this was the next one. Lots of people were doing them. Paul Meskel has one, so that's good enough for me. Um, my girlfriend thought it would be a good idea. I thought it'd be cool, so you know, I did it. And you see, like like Bono, looking back, he said in his memoir recently that uh, he's really embarrassed by his hair in Live Aid, and uh, I. I admire you two from grow- growing up. Like, my dad's really into it. And I think that hair is so cool. And, you know, maybe I'll look back then in a few years' time and think this looks a bit cracked. But or Maybe let me ask you a little bit more about your girlfriend. Is she, is she a player of the long con by any chance? Did she say this with a straight face at the time? Yes, Connor, that'd be a great yeah, I, idea. You do that. Well, see, this, this is the thing. I think there's a big generational difference here. You know, you have, like, people my age, you know, embracing it, thinking it's really cool. Um, maybe in 10 years' time, we'll all, you know, regret it. But um, but you go above like 10, 20 years, like my colleagues the other day, the first thing they said when they hadn't seen me in a while, they said, Connor, your hair, this is crazy. This is, yeah. you know, some said it was contentious. Sorry, to offensive. somebody of my generation, I'm in my 50s, what you're trying to say <laughs> is I'm, I'm the edgy, long lost cousin who turns up to weddings with a collection of flick knives. Yes. Yeah, that, 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 that's it. Yeah. <laughs> why go for that look? Why? Why? Or, or am I just again missing the generational point here? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I guess maybe um, uh, maybe Lisa will be able to say more on this. But trends are kind of cyclical, and you know, like eighties, nineties, early two thousands. That's kind of in right now. Um, I just think it looks cool, you know. Um, and you know, I'll see where that goes. Maybe in a few months, you yeah, know, I'll get rid you, of it. You are rounding off the look with a, a glorious <laughs> tash as well, which really does complete the ensemble. Uh, and I'm only jealous I could never grow a moustache <laughs> like that, Connor. But I mean, you, you really went whole hog here. People who want to take a look at Connor, I hope you don't mind us objectifying no, no. you in this way. You can uh, tune in to uh, rt.ie forward slash today CB to the website. It's uh, up there and indeed on the RT News Now uh, platform as well. Um, the tash is an important part of the yeah. ensemble. Yeah, I, I guess I tried it at college a few years ago and the people weren't ready. You know, um, wh- whatever it was, people love to tell you what they think about your facial hair. And I knew straight away people did not like it. So I changed that to a beard and most people were happy with the beard, except my granddad. He did not like that. Um but, uh, but yeah, no, I, I tried it on recently. I'm happy with it. Other people don't like it. And do you know what? I've come to the point where, like, I don't mind if people don't like my hair. I like it. I like the moustache. You know, it works for me. So I'll sort of go with that for a while anyway. Lisa, how many people are embracing this? Oh, it's become so popular again. And personally, I'm loving it. 
I think it's great to see people want to be a little bit more individual, even though I know it's a particular style. But to see the likes of Miley Cyrus bringing it back, you know, I mean, essentially it's like a family tradition with them, you know, seeing as Billy Ray had it beforehand. But like, I love to see like the mullet on women. There's so many different variations of it. But yeah, I think like for a long time, lads can be very like safe and maybe conservative with their hair, whereas the mullet is kind of like saying, well, look, I'm up for okay, a bit of fun. Okay, but the thing is that neither Connor Kaplis here in front of me or Miley are really doing the proper Billy Ray mullet, which is where you pull the hair Shades. back behind you and you shave those <laughs> sides. Uh, they have yeah. a, There's a much softer uh, focus to this uh, new generation of mullet. Fair enough? Absolutely, yeah. So that's the thing. There is various different styles of it. You can go for that very shaved on the sides look, which I think is a bit more of like a home DIY job when somebody does it that way. Whereas if you go like into salons, you're going to get a much more kind of blended kind of style where it'll be that bit shorter on the sides, blended into longer on the back. But it's a great style actually for anyone who's got like naturally curly or wavy hair. It works really well because a lot of the time what they don't like is all the width on the sides, but actually having the little bit of movement in the back and the top looks really good. Lisa Eccles and Connor Kaplis from Today with Philip Badger Hayes. And on the news at one, the news of the death of broadcaster and writer Deirdre Purcell. Now, as you may have heard, the death has taken place of the author, journalist and broadcaster Deirdre Purcell, author of many critically acclaimed and commercially successful novels. She'd been an Abbey actress, had worked as a newspaper reporter and as a broadcaster with RTE. Her family said they were deeply grieving her sudden loss and would miss her desperately. Deirdre was a serious and talented professional but also had a humorous side and in an interview a number of years ago explained how her initial interest in religion changed when she went into the bright lights of the world. When I came home from school and announced that I was going to be a nun, I even had my list for my trousseau and uh, my parents quite rightly said, look, you have to wait till you're 18. I was only 17 and of course as soon as I got into the, the bright lights and the world and boys, which we hadn't, I mean, boys to us were really a different species. We never saw any males uh, except the poor old chaplain, God love him. The late Deirdre Purcell. We're joined now by Deirdre's friend, the author, Patricia Scanlon. Patricia, thanks for talking to us on the programme. You've today lost a very great friend. I have, Brian. I I, I am just in shock. It was only a couple of weeks ago she was um, sitting here with me and we were laughing our heads off and she looked so vibrant and radiant and full of energy. And, um, you know, I, I, I treasured the photograph I took of her because obviously that's the last one, but she was in great form. And uh, when I got the message this morning, I, I couldn't believe it. Uh, we've lost somebody, uh, the arts world has lost somebody very, very special, a very talented um, broadcaster, journalist, writer, uh, an actress. Um, but her friends have lost something really special. When Deirdre was your friend, you were befriended and minded and cherished. And, and you discovered that, I think, very early on in your, in your friendship. Um, was it when your first book was published? Yeah, when City Girl came out, and I was still working in the libraries, Brian, and uh, so I was a library assistant, and um, I got a message from Deirdre Purcell inviting me to lunch. I said, oh, my God, Deirdre Purcell is inviting me to lunch. Like, the, the rarefied airs of RTE, I wouldn't even dream of, of, of uh, knowing anybody out there. And uh, I had an ear infection, and I thought she said Peebles in Bagot Street. 
the librarian said, you eejit, it's Giebel's. So she invited me to Giebel's and we clicked straight away and I invited her back then. We went to um, Locks. And that was the end of our fine dining, Brian. Ever after, we used to love chippies. And uh, if we were going to an event and we'd be dressed up to the nines with all the makeup on, we'd be sitting outside the chipper, laughing our heads off, saying if they could see the best-selling author's fine dining experience. <laughs> and she was just a great friend to go on holidays with. Like, we had such laughs. Um, I, I, I really am mm. shattered, to be honest. There were so many aspects to her, her professional career, as, as we were saying early on, an Abbey actress and then a, a journalist, a broadcaster here in RTE, the, the first uh, woman anchor, I think, of the nine o'clock news, okay. later on a newspaper reporter and obviously her career uh, as an author. She packed a lot in. And she wore it so lightly. Um, and I would see her in action, you know, if we, were, if we were going to something, we'd be walking along and the next minute we'd be going into the event or whatever and the shoulders would go back and the head would go up. And it would be Deirdre Purcell, performer, uh, who went in. But she was such an intelligent woman with such a broad range. I mean, we had fascinating conversations. Uh, like everybody that knew her um, was was taken um, in under her wing. And, you know, you kind of shone in her life. And she was very kind for giving advice. I always remember her saying to me when I was going on book tours, buy plenty of jackets. Mm-hmm. You can change them and wear the same pair of trousers Good and stuff advice. like you know, stuff like that. But she was uh, a sharp, um, sharp as a tack. Um, I mean, look, she was on on the regulatory board of the the banks. Um, mm. Just, I, I used to remember long before I knew her personally, reading her um, articles in the in the Sunday Tribune. Mm. The, uh, she used to do. Um, uh, interviews with people, uh, the features, and you know, I I was always fascinated by her and the way she she wrote and her her way of writing, her her way of forming words and mm. sentences. It was it was just um, she was very very special. Well, our condolences to you, Patricia, and to all uh, Deirdre's very many friends, and uh, of course, in particular, to her family, her husband Kevin, her sons Adrian, oh, yes. uh, and, and Simon. Family They're, was everything to Deirdre. They are everything. in our th- they are in our thoughts this uh, lunchtime. Patricia Scanlon paying tribute to Deirdre Purcell from The News at One. Now, artist and in particular caricaturist Niall O'Loughlin was Ryan Tuberty's guest in the morning. I'm uh, from a family of six, so four. I had four brothers, or three brothers, obviously, I was one of them. Uh, I grew up originally in Lucan Heights, and then we moved to the Strawberry Beds, I know, you know, with the, the famous song. Yeah. Um, so kind of from 10 up until kind of moved out in the strawberry beds. So that was that was kind of my base. OK, yeah. uh, school, happy, bored, sad. Hated school. Hated school. Okay. Hated school, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Was that, uh, I was that kid who sat at the back of the class, doodled constantly, always yeah. in trouble for doodling, ironically. Well, Still doodling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still doodling. Um, so no, school and me didn't get on. Yeah. yeah. It happens with so many people I speak to across this desk uh, for people yeah. who are, who have achieved a lot. Um, they just didn't connect with the school system as it is. No. You know. um, what, what do you think it was? Was it, your, was it you? Was it the system? Was it just not friendly place for artists? No, <coughs> excuse me. No, it absolutely wasn't. Um, I, I still, it's still not as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I think it's, it's very academic. And I mean, especially for somebody like myself, um, I think just artists come from 
the other side of the brain and I don't think it's encouraged at all so yeah I found it really tough Irish maths all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah really struggled I think is in the UK do you pick four subjects for your for your leaving cert your O levels and A level I think they do it yeah I think it's different I, I would have loved that I think I would have been a much better student at school much more engaged academically if I could have done just the stuff yeah. I like now that doesn't make sense then I suppose they say well you wouldn't have spoken maybe Irish better, better or done maths or what have you but it, it, there's so many to have to do seven or eight subjects for the at the end of the academic and you're only good at one of them That's good. and you're only just about good at one, good at one, one of them yeah, yeah no it's, it's a tough one so tell me about the uh, the escape if you like from the school uh, system and, and uh, going somewhere you found a sort of a, your natural home then um, well <clears throat> do you know I was uh, actually I was I think I was 15 yeah. I was sitting home one day and this this song it's still actually it's famous today by AHA called Take On Me oh, sure. oh I remember the video yeah, for yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um I actually still like them to this day but um, this video came on Take On Me it was an animated video yeah. and it just I was like it inspired something in me. I was like, oh my God, that's, you know, the animation, the lines, all the drawing, everything. I'd never seen anything like it. It's well, kind of black and white pencil yeah, sketching. Yeah, there had almost, never yeah. been anything like it. And yeah. um, I think most people aren't lucky enough to get that kind of moment because I know even with my own boys, there's like, you know, and just people in general don't get that moment where you kind of go, that's what I want to do. But that was really it. Mm. So I saw the animation uh, I was 15 at the time and I think that was my, I had direction then that I could take my art in. And I know if you went to Ballyfermot Technical College. Yeah, Ballyfermot, that's, I went there for six months. At what age were you then? I would have been 20, uh, 19, 20, yeah. college age, yeah. I'm losing track, it's that what, long what, ago. What a great uh, institution that is, though, because it has produced, it, it, it's been a, an incubator. for. It was huge yeah, back then, yeah. it was the place to go to, it was like they had the music course. Um, I know a lot of DJs still work and did the music course there and the yeah. animation was a big thing. So um, I actually did my leave insert in Ballyfermot. So I moved from the school I was in. So I literally just kind of went straight from that into animation, uh, which was just perfect for me. So th at that stage, I was kind of starting to find my feet, if you know what I mean. It was like I felt at home kind of you're, thing. You, you, yeah. found, you found, found your drive. My, yeah. yeah. Um, with, with, with so many guests you meet, there's always that teacher. Um, so will we talk about Mr. Pearson for a moment? Um, yeah. Tell me about I, how I, important I, he was. I know he's still out there. I've never been able, I've never been able to get in contact with him, but it, it was kind of the start of somebody, artists are very, how should we say, I kind of connected with him. Yes. And to this day, I still connect with other artists, be it like I'm a typical dad you know, with the soccer or whatever. I'm attracted or attracted. I say yeah. attra I'm drawn to people yes, yeah. who are creative. So I'll end up talking to the dad who's a musician or something yeah. or, you know, um, but he just saw something in me that none of the other teachers did. The other teachers, I was just a messer and I was a messer, like in fairness, <laughs> I was. But he just saw something in me and he encouraged it. And I think if you have one person like that uh, in a school, that can give you direction. Like, and he was so encouraging. Like he knew he's, you know, from day one, he said, you're just going to make it as an artist. You're right. going to make it as, you know, and that was, that was all I needed really, that push. Great encouragement. Out. And Ryan asked Niall about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, my first job out of college. How cool is that? That's, that has yeah, to be one cool of the greatest jobs. I have to laugh because even my kids now say to me, um, Dad, did you, you said something about working on the teenage, and yeah. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, oh, really? Did you really do that?" Like, oh, oh. like they weren't even born. Yeah, that's how long ago it was. But they it's CV gold, though. Yeah, CV guess, gold. I Tell guess. me about the job and how you got it and how it worked. Just, uh, I remember walking around my portfolio one day because they had to apply for colleges and stuff. So I walked from, I actually walked from Mount Joy Square to 
the NCAD in Thomas Street. Yeah. And then I walked from there to Harcourt Street, where the, the studios was. And I met Jimmy Murakami and he immediately says, looked at my portfolio and said, do you want a job? Oh, lovely. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. Okay. I said, well, I'm still in college. He's like, come on, Lee. So yeah. I left. And got into them yeah, doing doing yeah, that. How yeah. long did you rebuild? Oh, we did a couple of years there. It was brilliant. Yeah. Was this around the Sullivan Bluth time? The that came afterwards. Yeah. Sullivan Bluth came afterwards. Yeah. All dogs go to heaven. American Tale, all that kind American of stuff. American Tale. Yeah. So they were. That, that was a kind of a boom time, really, wasn't there? Yeah. For, it was. Yeah. I mean, there was like it's still a boom time, believe it or not. Well, I think it's it, as you know, it's a, the brown bag, and um, there's I can't think of the other name. There's another one that that with this massive uh, cartoon. Business, in yeah, the, in yeah, the absolutely, yeah. So um, it's massive. So the last thing I ever did, I think I'm probably jumping ahead, but was I did work for Brown Bag on yeah. Give Up Your L Sins. Yes. So that was the last thing I ever did, animation wise. Okay. After, after that, I was burnt out. Okay. Well, why don't we talk about that? Because you you did you you made your way through as I say the Turtles and the Sullivan Blues and Give Up Your L Sins. I mean, these are all uh, grade A. Um, projects to be associated with and they were lucky to have you clearly but what, how did burnout come into it? Um, it was well you know what I mean I that was a that was a year long project so I was kind of doing a lot of it myself Yeah, and just at the end of it then I kind of it was like it was it was just I was saying that's not what I want to do anymore um, animation to me was it was great at the start, but then it just started to get really repetitive. So it was kind of like the same thing every day. And I just felt like I was like, OK, it was changing as well. So, you know, the way it is now with the computer animation mm. and stuff back then, it was all hand drawn. So if you think about it, it was like literally you had to draw every single frame. There was no computer. I know I sound like, well, I am a real alpha, <laughs> but there was literally no computers. Like it was 24 frames a second or for animation, 16, all that technicals. Yes. So you drew every and like you sat there all day drawing, yeah. like just one. That could be off. quite mind numbing. Yeah, yeah. And I just went, this isn't for me. Okay. This isn't for me. And I made a decision at that stage to um, to go down the road I've gone down now. As caricatures. Caricatures. Um, but no, why are you laughing at that no. though? Yeah, I know. I still funny. Yeah, is this your, yeah. I've, spent, I've had so many years. Is this your real job? Like it's just, yeah, I still get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, again, the, the burnout thing, was that just, I'm just trying to figure out, was it, it sounds more like boredom than burnout. I don't want Actually, to be like. Actually, yeah, it was boredom. Yeah, it was boredom. I was getting bored. Time to, time to yeah, get out yeah, of there. Yeah, I was getting really bored of it. I just was, yeah. And how did the caricature <clears throat> side of things come into play? So I was being, uh, oh, we, Guinness actually came into oh, yeah. Sullivan Bluth and they were looking for caricaturists to do uh, caricatures for events. So basically they brought, they brought you around the country, myself and my mates, they put us up in hotels, B&Bs. Nice. They paid us to go to the pub and everybody who got a pint of Guinness got a free caricature. Oh, very clever. Yeah. Okay. So we did this for a couple of years on and off part time. Yeah. And um, we became, we thought we were rock stars. Like it got really out of hand. Uh, I'm not, like we were, like, we were j- throwing TV window, or t- TVs out the window. Like we were just, you know, it <laughs> was like, B&B. we'd walk, we'd commit to a town and we were treated like celebs. It was just hilarious. And we just, yeah, young guys, Enjoy free drink house. all night. Yeah, it yeah. was like, yeah. Um, so that just went back to the animation then. And then I kind of went, you know what? Then I, I was kind of realized that I was in a studio with 300 people. Yes. And very few of them could do what I would do. So if somebody was leaving, for example, or going to get Nile, get Nile to do um, a caricature. Mm. And then I'd start to get asked to do them for different things and stuff. And then, oh, hang on, maybe there's something here, mm. you know. So that's kind of how it sort of. Because you got, you went up, you got married, you had a young family. And ultimately then you decided to leave the steady job, as it were, and go out on your own. 
Yeah, my time was brilliant. So I have four boys and my wife was pregnant with my first boy, Reen. And I came home one day, I think she must have been about six, seven months pregnant. And I said, um, I'm quitting my job. Yeah. And uh, she just said, OK, you're quitting your job. And it was a pretty good job at the time. And I said, yeah. And she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I have this plan to be a caricaturist. And she's like, OK. And um, that was it, really. I literally yeah. just walked out and said, that's I'm going to give this a go. So after taking the big risk, how did things go for Niall? But it really didn't go. I have to be honest with you. It was like, it was awful. It what was, were you doing? Weddings and stuff like no, that? No, you see, the wedding thing, not, none of that existed. So none of that, none of what I do now existed. I, I quit the job thinking that I'd get some part-time stuff from the newspapers. Oh, I'd, yeah. get, I'd get some freelance animation work just to keep me going and just do... I actually didn't really have a plan and that's yeah. the God's honest truth. But it took three years. We were smashed. We hadn't a penny. We had to borrow money to pay for the mortgage, everything. Like we were really broke and a new baby and everything. Uh, like they don't believe the, uh, you know, that baby doesn't believe, you know, he's 22. <laughs> like, okay. um, but just gradually things started to pick up. I started, you know, I had no money one time to do um buy my friend a, a wedding present. So I, I said, how about I draw a few people at your wedding? Oh, that's a really good and idea. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. So I, I remember, I can clearly remember, because I was still able to bend my leg up then, sitting, I had a sketch pad on my lap. Yeah, yeah. And I sat there at the wedding and I drew all the guests. And, and they there was a queue it. around the corner yeah, for you. Yeah, it. And I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. And then for my own wedding, I designed my own invites, caricature myself, my wife. Yeah. I said, maybe other people would like that. And, and so that's just kind of started to get a bit of traction and, you know, that started to come in. Then there was that side of it. Then people started ordering gifts, you know, for people. A then, framed picture of the, yeah. the married couple or the, the guy retiring exactly. or whatever. Because you really, yeah. you have exactly. a great eye for detail yeah. in, in the ones. I, uh, people may be familiar, especially online. And I think online has been a great gift to you uh, because... It you, has now. Yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. to everyone who, who has your stuff because... Uh, you know, when you think of the Charlie Bird, you, you've you've captured the the magic of that story yeah, beautifully, and the mountain and Vicky, yeah. uh, Vicky feeling and and uh, President Higgins and stuff like that. You 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 pick out you know people who have made a difference, and you even as a caricature, you pick out the the, the nicer parts of of who or what. I they try are. to really do. I've I've, I've softened my. Uh, softened my approach to it over the years. I've, you know, I've become a bit of expert on judging people, reading people and, and you know, just knowing who can take it and who can't and so Is on. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Do you think some yeah. people take a caricature badly? You see, the way I, I do it, because I do it for events, only do it for events, where people who come over to me absolutely want one. They love one and stuff, um, you know, so they really want one. So the people who don't want one don't tend to come near me. Yeah. But saying that, like, I mean, even at the weekend, I won't say you know where per- or why yeah yeah there was a person and they had a certain feature that was quite prominent okay so I was really conscious of that because I you know you didn't want that person going out of there kind of being upset so what I, you know I kind of angled it so that you know I didn't and you know what they were absolutely thrilled oh good just thrilled so you I, have to be quite oh, mindful you, really don't you of, of you people's... do you do but then some people will just sit down most people just say and they'll just go look just go to town on me and just go to town on me. And okay. it, it amazes me how much, even even in this day, you know, that people just love yeah. having the, a you car, know, a car, a car. torn out of them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Having yeah. the Mickey taken yeah. out of yeah. them like that. Uh, there's a lot of texts coming in. We'll get to them in a few minutes' time. Um, in terms of your own family, tell me about your mother, Sally. So I lost my mother last... I hear my voice going there, excuse me. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah I lost her last October. Okay, I'm condolences so, um, I didn't know. Um, yeah, dementia. 
So she had that for a couple of years and so on. But she was, you know, she had a good life. Um, she lived till she was 85. Um, but yeah, she was, she was, you know, she was my mom. Um, but dementia is, is from, from what I can understand from talking to people, is some people have a kinder sort of dementia and some people have a vicious, awful dementia. Yeah. I mean, it's a spectrum, let's face it. Um, and I know that sounds like a strange word to say kinder dementia, but I think anyone who knows what we're talking about will understand why I say that. I do. I uh, absolutely you, do. You do. Well, tell me I about it. I absolutely do. I do. My mother was, uh, you know, she was a, her, the way her life had gone and stuff, you know, she, she wasn't, she was a tough woman, you know, very, very strong. She'd had to be, you know, because of the various things that happened. But um, dementia did soften her. And I, I was thinking about this, actually. I said, if you did ask me how I would, if I had to pick a way for my mother to go, and this doesn't sound, I have to phrase this right, because you certainly wouldn't pick dementia for somebody. Do you know what I mean? Because she was a very, very glamorous woman. Like, dementia stole that from her. But she was also very aware of everything in terms of if she had a cold, if she had a headache, she was like, oh, I've got this, I've got that. You know, she was terrified of all the things that, you know, okay, the big C word, you know, everything. And I think if she had got that and been in her full senses, it would have really destroyed her. She, you know, I don't think she would have taken that well at all. Whereas the dementia thing kind of crept up on her and kind of going back to what you said, she was like, she was happy. She yeah. was really happy was in she? that care home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they, they just could. And that's the other thing. I mean, she made us swear never to put her into a nursing home. Like we had to swear, almost sign an affidavit or whatever, like do not put me. But she went in, she was happy. She didn't mind. She didn't even know, you know, so it was good. Nyla Lachlan from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Philip Edger Hayes, those pesky balloons being shot down over America and Canada. Defence editor at The Economist, Shashank Yashi. Tell me, if you were the Chinese People's Liberation Army and you wanted to spy on the United States, would you use balloons? Well, you have spy satellites that can do the job and can do that from space in a much more safe and reliable way. But it's that reliable part that actually is, is a double-edged sword because um, America, indeed all other countries, know where satellites are. They move in predictable orbits. Balloons move unpredictably, indeed, as we've seen. When the US found one in Montana a couple of days ago, then lost it before rediscovering it over uh, the Canadian border. So that unpredictability relative to the known cyclical orbits of satellites can be an advantage in finding things. I think the other advantage, potential advantage, is the difficulty of detecting balloons because, um, you know, your spy planes or, or, or other kinds of air-breathing aircraft with jet engines uh, can be picked up by radar. Radar is designed to pick them up, both in terms of their speed, their movement, and their um, uh, radar-absorbent or reflective material. Um, Balloons are really a curveball. They're not designed to be, you know, they're not optimized for radar. Radar doesn't know what to make of them and they move so slowly. Radar may filter them out as being an object on the ground or a stationary object that isn't worth following up or getting a lock on. So therefore, if you were China, I don't see the harm in throwing some balloons into the mix. It may yield some advantages. Except that you would have an awful lot of data about moose in Yukon or the size of waves on Lake Huron to filter out before you might get anything useful. 
That's true, but of course that's also true for satellites. It's also true for many other kinds of intelligence collection platforms. Um, and indeed, you know, it, it's not it's not like there's someone sort of pouring through frame after frame of unexposed film. Presumably, this indeed we know from the U.S. officials about the first object that was shot down off North Carolina. It was transmitting data to satellites, and it was it was sending data all the time. So it need only transmit data or relevant material when it's over a site of interest. And of course, in Montana, in Wyoming, in these big open states where where we you know in this part of America we have nuclear missile silos that are of great interest to the Chinese we have lots of defense sites and even the object that was shot down over Canada last night um, over Lake Huron um, was shot down in part because it was near sensitive DOD sites and so um, the intelligence hall may be very low but it may be enough relative to the low cost of a balloon that renders it a sensible trade-off so I stress mm-hmm. we don't know what the last three objects are because US officials are are um, very wary of calling them balloons just yet. You remain open to the possibility that they might actually be more likely to have originated from whatever the Chinese equivalent of the Met Office is rather than from the People's Liberation Army. Well, the first balloon, I have no doubt, is a Chinese spy balloon. Uh, I think that's clear enough. The Americans wouldn't have made such a firm and confident attribution without ample evidence. I have no doubt about that. Um, The subsequent three, my sense is that um, uh, uh, most of them are, are are probably intelligence collection platforms of different sorts, but we should be open to the possibility, given how um, sensitive American radar currently is. It's picking up things it wasn't previously picking up because it's changed the sort of sensitivity filter on the speed of object it's it's looking for, um, and given how um, uh, politically charged the issue is, and therefore how important it is for the Biden administration not to appear weak. We should be open to the possibility that perhaps one one of these is is a stray weather balloon or research balloon of some other kind that was in the stratosphere. So they weren't looking for them before. That's why they're detecting more of them now. Added into which there's the political dimension here that uh, the Trump administration gave these balloons a free pass. So that provides the Biden administration with perhaps a political motivation for looking strong. Those are the well, things. I, I think the Trump administration didn't give them a pass. From what we know, they didn't have the means to detect them. Their radar systems were not set up for that just then. And in fact, it's not the Trump administration's fault per se. It was only when they caught another balloon in the Biden administration, not the one last week, but an earlier one, they were able to use its data to tweak their system and say what other things looked like this. And they retroactively found it. And I think it's important to make that point. Shashank Yoshi from Today with Philip Archer Hayes. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.